welcome. We're about to get started on our event, uh, Crisis and Uprising, Canada's Role in Haiti. Um, thank you. Thank you to everyone for joining us. I see people are still coming in through the Zoom. You are here watching Crisis and Uprising, Canada's Role in Haiti. And today uh, we're joined by Vijay Prashad. Jean Saint-Ville will be joining us soon. Brian Kincannon is here. And Elle Jones will hopefully be joining us as well, although we got word that her flight is delayed, um, but she may be able to join us towards the end. So I am Bianca Majeni, and I'm with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, who are the hosts and organizers of today's event. You can find out more about our work at foreignpolicy.ca. We're an organization that challenges unjust foreign policy measures and aims to bridge the gap between the reality and perception of Canada's role in the world. And we also work to oppose the racism that is embedded in Canadian foreign policy. So the Institute is based in Montreal or Georgiage on the territory of the Ganyangihaka people and the keepers of the Eastern door of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And we also recognize the continued presence of the Métis, Innu and Inuit folks on this land. So I wanna thank our co-sponsor, uh, Common Frontiers as well. Please do find out about their work. And for today's event, um, our speakers will be giving their remarks. And then after that, we're going to be taking questions from the audience. I can see people at home are already starting to comment in the chat. Hello, Ridiman. Um, hey, everyone at home. Uh, the chat is open. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I can see uh, Jeffrey Kaiti is in the waiting room, so I'm just going to let him in. Um, and so for today, um, the political backdrop of tonight's event is the possibility of Canada leading a foreign mil military intervention in Haiti. And two weeks ago, um, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute released an action um, opposing such a mission, and 700 individuals emailed Canada's foreign minister and the opposition critics, and we're happy to report that the NDP foreign critic, Heather McPherson, did release a statement and has made public comments partly reflecting our position. So when we try to understand the crisis in Haiti, we have to acknowledge that at each major point over the past two decades, Canada has contributed to worsening the situation in Haiti. Through its membership in the core group, Canada effectively appointed Ariel Henry to lead the country uh, 16 months ago. The U.S. and Canada intervened in the 2010 election that resulted in Michel Martelly becoming president and have supported uh, his Payashteka regime since, including when he picked the relatively uh, little-known Jovenel Moïse to be president. A little further back in history, in 2004, the Canadian government contributed to the overthrow of Haiti's elected government, and uh, 13 months earlier hosted what's called the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, <clears throat> which was a meeting about Haiti's future um, that no Haitians were invited to, um, uh, that included discussion of the removal of Haiti's president, uh, UN trusteeship, and much of what was discussed at that meeting did come to pass. Uh, and the coup brought about this devastating 13-year uh, UN occupation. So for anyone who might be saying to themselves that this time things have gone so bad that surely Canada's actions will be different, uh, need to consider Canada's reaction to the horrible 2010 earthquake. And so while most people living in Canada were just worried about getting people out of rubble or getting the medical help or water, food, other supports. Um, Canadian officials worried about a power vacuum. And according to a Canadian press article based upon access to information files that came out afterwards, Canadian officials were worried about Haitian authorities' ability to open, quote, 
uh, to contain the risks of a popular uh, uprising. Close quote. And the internal government documents note, open quote, political fragility has increased the risks of a popular uprising and has fed the rumor that ex-president Jean-Bertrand Aristide, currently in exile in South Africa, wants to organize a return to power. Close quote. So amidst the devastation, Canadian officials were somehow still maintaining a desire to control and dominate. So it is heartening to see statements um, like the one from Progressive International last week asserting that the people of Haiti must determine their own future. And today, more than 90 organizations sent a letter to U.S. President Joe Biden expressing profound concern about the proposed deployment of military force to Haiti. And so with that, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Vijay Prashad, who will be giving a word of solidarity at the beginning of our event to introduce uh, today's event. Um, Vijay is a historian and journalist. He's the author of 30 books, including Washington Bullets, Red Star Over the Third World, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. He's the chief correspondent for Globetrotter and chief editor of Leftward Books. Uh, for 25 years, he's a professor at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. He's also a member uh, of the Council of Progressive International. Welcome, Vijay. Thanks a lot, Bianca. Um, well, the first thing I'd like to say, Bianca, is that Canada is, as I often say when I come on your platform, is the home of 60% of the world's mining companies. Um, Canadians have a very interesting self-image of them, you know, being um, decent people, not like the people south of the border uh, who are eager to go and overthrow governments and so on. Well, I would ask um, sensitive, decent Canadians to rethink this self-image. Um, you know, as I said, 60% of mining companies are located in Canada, including Barrick Gold and other companies that have done horrendous things around the world from Papua New Guinea um, to South America. And in fact, Canada has played a leading role um, in a number of coup attempts, including against Venezuela through the so-called Lima Group, which, you know, as I've often said, is better known as the Ottawa Group. Um, but <coughs> the word Ottawa is interesting. You might remember the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, uh, which played, which, through which the Canadian government in 2004 was hand in glove with George W. Bush's government in the United States, uh, to conduct the second coup against Jean-Bertrand Aristide in Haiti in 2004. Um, Aristide is one of the few world leaders who might go in the Guinness Book of World Records for being cooed twice. Um, you know, I think he's the only one, in fact, who was cooed twice by the West. Once in 91, the other in 2004. Uh, let's face it, friends, when, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau or others say things like we're worried about the political situation in Haiti, you made that political situation. You created that. You twice cooed a democratically elected government twice in 1991, 2004. You then sent in a UN force, which was an occupying force, um, you did all that, you know, you put in, you created Ariel Henry. Uh, Ariel Henry was a creation of U.S. money uh, from the National Endowment for Democracy and so on. Ariel Henry was a creature of the North American countries to overthrow Aristide in 1991. Let's not forget that. 
Henry is not, as he likes to call himself, just a doctor. Um, he was a, he was working for the West to overthrow Aristide in 1991. So, you know, when Trudeau says, oh, we're concerned, we're concerned, your concern is meaningless. You made this mess. You made this mess from 1804 till today. Um, that's the first point. Second point is nobody is saying that the West or the imperialist countries should not intervene in Haiti. Nobody's saying that. In fact, I want to say something different. Uh, you know, in, in the International People's Assembly and in the Progressive International, we've taken this position. The position isn't no intervention in Haiti. The position is get the West out of Haiti. It's not like it's going to enter Haiti. They've already been there. Um, in fact, my friends, you are so concerned about barbecue, Jimmy Chenier and all these, you know, gangs and so on. Where are they getting the weapons from? Bloomberg reported that barbecue's gang is getting its weapons from Miami, from gun shops in Miami. Um, who killed, uh, you know, Mr. Moises? It was um, mercenaries from Colombia, some of them, again, with links to Miami. The question isn't no intervention. It's stop intervening. Let the Haitian people breathe. That's the statement from the International People's Assembly. That's the statement from the Progressive International. And let me just say it quite straightforwardly. That's the statement from the people of Haiti, from those garment workers who went on strike in January and February. Where was the Western press when garment workers, 90% of Haitian exports from the garment sector, Garment workers in trade unions went on strike in January and February, didn't see a report in the New York Times, didn't see a report in the Canadian press. They only report our countries when our countries entered into a situation of chaos. They don't report our countries when good people are in the middle of trying to improve things in the country and their agents like Ariel Henry smash the trade union movement, uh, disrupt people's genuine attempt to create a good society. So let's not fall for this over and over again. Mr. Trudeau might be a very nice person. I have no idea. I don't have any personal knowledge of Mr. Trudeau. But they are behaving like barbarians. And why do I use such a strong word? They are barbarians. They are not allowing the Haitian people to breathe. 11 million Haitians, just like 11 million Cubans, want to breathe. Why is North America so hell-bent in suffocating the Caribbean. Why? That's up to you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vijay. Thank you for your words of solidarity. Yes, yes, let Haiti breathe 100%. Um, so I invite you all to read the statement from the Progressive International. I posted this in the chat. Um, and I also invite you to take one minute to, um, to email Canada's foreign minister and, uh, and opposition critics to say no to Canadian military intervention in Haiti. And Vijay is leaving us now. So I just want to take a moment to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for that message of solidarity. Good night. And welcome, welcome Jeffrey Kaiti, Jean Saintville. Um, and Brian, can Canada still, still with us? For anyone who's just joining, this is Crisis and Uprising, Canada's role in Haiti. And um, we are now uh, nearly 150 people on this call, which is great and important. Um, it's wonderful to see such a high level of engagement for such an important 
uh, and salient topic for, for those of us living here in Canada. So our next uh, panelist of the evening is Jean Saint-Ville, uh, Jeffrey Kaiti. Jean is an author and member of Solidarity Quebec Haiti. He's the co-founder of Akasan, Haitian, Kaap Sutni, Haitian, Netal Kol, and Jacques Conbit. He's an artist activist immersed in global peace and social justice movements. You can find out more about his work at jeffreykaiti.com. I'll put it in the chat. Welcome. Welcome, Jean. Thank you very much, Bianca. Uh, greetings, Brian. And uh, uh, really, it's so nice to see uh, some uh, familiar faces of uh, activists, people of good conscience who've been uh, doing their best to tell the truth about the ongoing nightmare uh, in Haiti. It's more than just a nightmare. It's also a struggle because there are amazing people who have uh, given us hope in humanity. Inside of Haiti, of course, in terms of those who are resisting, but also in Canada. Uh, as co-founder of the Canada-Haiti Action Network, which uh, really tried to educate Canadians after the coup in 2004 from East Coast to West Coast, I had the privilege of meeting some very beautiful Canadian uh, some of them that have uh, gone to the other side have joined the ancestors. But, you know, the raging grannies uh, who, when they found out that their tax money was being used to support white supremacy in Haiti, uh, decided to join the struggle uh, of the Haitian people. And so I salute Marie Scarrett and others uh, who have given tremendous contribution uh, to our work. Uh, Bianca, as uh, Vijay said, uh, what we are talking about here is not, uh, you know, saying no to uh, foreign intervention in Haiti. It's actually a liberation uh, that is required because the imperialists are already in the country. Uh, they are running the show. Uh, and the reason why most people outside don't know about that is because in their arsenal of weapons, they also have media, uh, you know, white media, which they sometimes call mainstream media, as if there's nothing else that exists. <laughs> so uh, in reality, Haiti is under foreign tutelage since February 2004, when the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, which is this plotting meeting that took place where I live in Gatineau, uh, where they had decided uh, to put Haiti under tutelage and, and, and overthrow the government, 7,000 elected officials. Uh, I always insist on that because, you know, it's always easy to just paint uh, any black leader as dictator, bad. Therefore, you know, they only had bad leaders. So we came in with removed one, so what? Uh, in fact, Jean-Bertrand Aristide is a more decent human being than any one of those criminals who conspired to overthrow him. And here I'm talking about George Bush, Sarkozy, Chirac, Jean Chrétien, uh, who really felt no shame in attacking a population that doesn't even have an army. <laughs> I mean, what does it take for these people to realize how cowardly their behavior was. Because the crime of the Haitian population was to have the audacity to see themselves 
as adults who should have, who must have the privilege of choosing their own leaders. And so um, this afternoon, I was reiterating a call that I'm making to Africans born or living in Canada. I think we need a Trans-Africa Forum in Canada. Uh, and, you know, saying that, I must applaud the work of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute that's already doing an amazing job specifically for why I've been calling for a Trans-Africa Forum in Canada. For those who don't know, Trans-Africa Forum is an organization that uh, Brother Randall Robinson, uh, a famous African-American author, and Danny Glover uh, were heading in the United States to try to make sure that the policies, the foreign policy of the United States, uh, which really is racist, imperialist, white supremacist, and makes the lives of African people hell on earth everywhere, in the Caribbean as in uh, on the continent of Africa, that they try to counter that. And I believe in Canada, we have the same situation. Uh, when you look at how our policies are applied in the Congo, in Ivory Coast, in Haiti, it's the same pattern. Now, of course, it's not different in uh, in terms of the policy towards Venezuela or Bolivia, okay, where you see the mobilization of uh, diploma, uh, diplomatic forces, economic forces to try to overthrow indigenous leaders like Evo Morales or, you know, uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But I think specifically, I am concerned with the behavior of African Canadians. There was such uproar when the news media told us something that should not have surprised any of us, that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in 2001, went to some kind of Halloween party in blackface. Of course, it's shocking. Of course, it's revolting. But we are lying to ourselves if we pretend that this was surprising. This society was established on white supremacy. Justin Trudeau, like most of the Canadian elites, grew up in such an environment. And that's why it never dawned on them that a whole bunch of white people sitting at Meech Lake in a meeting over two days could not seriously <laughs> decide the future of 12 million Africans in Haiti who were about to celebrate the bicentennial of the end of racial slavery. It never dawned on these stupid people that this idea was not only stupid, barbaric, and it was going to lead to disaster, and the world is going to find out about it. They went with it because they know in our society, people, when they hear the word white supremacy, when they, heard, uh, they hear racism, they think KKK, they think French, they think Donald Trump. No, stop lying to ourselves. The society in which we live does not face racism only when cops kill George Floyd. Okay. And then we march. We are thousands in the streets and then we forget about it. No. What I'm saying is that Justin Trudeau wearing blackface was only a symptom. 
a manifestation of something deep inside our society that is rotten. And that is white supremacy as an ideology that contaminates everything that we do, including our foreign policy. And so by seeing that our tax money is being used to prop up black-faced puppets in Haiti, okay, this is what concerns me. Not the fact that some guy wears a costume. I couldn't care less about that. That's just telling me that's his pathology. But when these white men and women met and they decided they're going to overthrow the president of Haiti, they move resources that they do have at their disposal and they make it happen. Thousands of people die as a result. Years later, 18 years later, you don't have a single Haitian leader who is uh, uh, legitimate. Okay, we went from 7,000 elected, duly elected officials running the country to zero. Okay, now that's white supremacy. That's racism. And that's what we need to combat. Not some guy wearing a costume. And when I talk about black face puppets, it's not an insult. It's not a word. If you go study Haitian history, you will see that's exactly what's been happening in Haiti since 1806. And the United States intervened in 1915 specifically to implement that ideology. So in the United States, you had segregation when they invaded Haiti in 1915. So when they arrived in Haiti, they looked for light-skinned Haitians, descendants of the Europeans, and uh, other light-skinned Haitians that came from the Middle East and imposed them on Haitian society as leaders. They imposed them not only as economic leaders, so they cornered the whole of import-export in Haiti, but they also imposed them as president. You go look at the list of presidents of Haiti from 1915 to 1946, they all look white, just like the presidents of the Dominican Republic, because that's the idea they have in their minds, okay? White minority rule. That's what they want to implement on both sides of the island. It has succeeded on the east side. They want it to also happen on the western side. And they're going to break their necks because the nation was created on the principle of every human is a human. Tuk moon se moon. And that is what the struggle is about in Haiti. Last uh, two weeks ago, I published in the Black Agenda Report uh, a piece titled The White Warlords of Haiti. And it's amazing how some people heard about that for the first time. How come? They're talking about the so-called gang blocking the oil terminal in Haiti, but they don't tell you who owns those oil terminals. Okay, go look for a picture of Gilbert Bijot online. Go look for Bernard Meuse online. Go look for Beausin online, okay? And our prime minister is always walking around saying that, you know, he's concerned about diversity, inclusion, and equity. So they don't care about diversity, inclusion, and equity in Haiti's business sector, where everybody is white? No. And it's, a, it's not a question of black and white in that, you know, if you take all the business sector and all of a sudden everybody, all the millionaires of Haiti are black and then it's, it's solved. That's not what we're saying, Okay. Uh, please don't try to diminish what I'm trying to say here. What I'm saying is that some of these guys are criminals. Some of them convicted criminals like Marc-Antoine Accra, who was indicted by Haitian law. And then Michel Martelly made him 
a goodwill ambassador to the Dominican Republic so that he doesn't get arrested because he said the drug also belonged to Michel Martelly. So you have a class, a past, to be more precise, of untouchable criminals in Haiti. That's what the foreign intervention is meant to go and protect. It has nothing to do with the black population of Haiti. And we think that's criminal, that's unacceptable. Uh, we need to have uh, a, a, a society in Haiti where just like we can celebrate the fact that our Brazilian brothers and sisters went to the polls and chose their president, uh, and I don't think, you know, this president is without blame. In fact, he participated in the coup in 2004. So, you know, I'm not here to say, to sing the praises of Lula. Lula has explanations to, to provide, just like today, uh, the president of Mexico and uh, those Caribbean fools who are jumping right and center who say they want to participate in the invasion of Haiti need to think twice. Because in 1983, when they invaded Grenada, because Prime Minister Moise Bishop was Im implementing some uh, progressive policies, okay, we need to understand that some of the small countries in the Caribbean, they will use them to invade Haiti, and then they will invade them uh, uh, a few years later. So they better be very careful because when you play nice with imperialists, that doesn't mean you're not going to be next on the line. Much respect. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you, Jeffrey Kaiti, for that really critical overview, um, history and the meaning of foreign intervention in Haiti. Their impact is very, very important. Uh, history and as always, uh, such critical analysis from you. Uh, you know, yes, respect Haitian sovereignty. No, no more intervention. Um, let Haiti breathe. So you can find out more about uh, Jeffrey Kaiti's work at jeffreykaiti.com. I put the link uh, in the chat. And also for those of you who are asking, yes, we will be rebroadcasting this discussion on both uh, YouTube and on Facebook. Um, so uh, you'll get immediate notification of that if you registered for this event. Also a reminder that we're going to be having a Q&A after this. So please do place your questions in the Q&A box. Thank you again, Jean. We're now going to be hearing from Brian Kincannon. Brian is a human rights lawyer and foreign policy advocate. Brian founded the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti and um, was executive director from 2004 to 2019 and is back there uh, right now as well. Um, he co-managed the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux. Um, BAI, and uh, this is Haiti's only public interest law office. He did this with Mario Joseph between 1996 and 2004. He also serves as a member of the editorial board of Health and Human Rights, an international journal at the Harvard School of Public Health, and much, much more. Welcome, Brian. Oh, I think you're on mute. Oh, still on mute. Okay, how's this? Yes. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, it's very nice to be with you, Bianca. I'll note that I'm I'm talking to you today from unceded Wampanoag lands in eastern Massachusetts, um, and it you know it's wonderful to to uh, be with Africa IT. 
Um, I really appreciate the uh, Canadian Foreign Policy Institute for bringing all of us together and for everybody joining this discussion. Because I'd like to second what Defragaiti said about Haiti not just being a tragedy, but it being a struggle. And it's a struggle that can be won. Um, it's against tall odds, as was becoming an independent country by winning independence from Napoleon at its peak. Those were tall odds. The Haitians did it. Uh, a lot of us were, were, were fighting for Haiti's, to get Haiti's democracy back after the 2004 coup d'etat. And, um, you know, I know I certainly had some, some days where I thought that it was never going to come back, but the Haitians kept fighting and they got their democracy back. And this is, a winnable battle. And I think we actually, there's, there's the fact that the U S and Canada are having so much trouble assembling a peacekeeping uh, mission is a sign that, that following the lead of Haitians who are resisting this, that their supporters overseas have made it hard for that mission to happen. Not impossible. The U S and Canada are, are, as we speak, trying to make it work. Um, we've heard that Canada in particular has been, has been given the task of trying to recruit, um, majority troops from, from majority Afro descendant countries, especially in the hemisphere, especially in the Caribbean. Um, so they haven't given up, but, but, we haven't given up, and most importantly, the Haitians haven't given up, and we have an opportunity to keep fighting uh, alongside Haitians to to help bring their struggle for sovereignty um, to, to 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 victory. And I think it's important to note, you know, where to some extent we we are fighting a similar battle that we fought in 2004 when we were trying to prevent a peacekeeping mission to come to prop up a um, a an internationally imposed dictatorship on Haiti. Um, and like Jeffrey Gaidi said, the imperialist had the, had the media. They were able to control what the me- major media was saying. What we didn't have in 2004 was the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. We didn't have webinars. We didn't have a lot of the, the online activist infrastructure that we have now um, and that we need to use and put to good effect to, to, to be able to overcome the, the tools that the international community uh, usually has in, in these situations. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about how my own um, my own experience has intersected with with this um, the history of the last 27 years of Haitians fighting for democracy and sovereignty and significant pushback by by our tax dollars. Um, I first went to Haiti um, actually with the United Nations. I was a UN volunteer with a with a um, a human rights mission in and, and I got there in 1995. I wasn't part of the peacekeeping mission, but there was a peacekeeping mission there, which was in important respects different from the peacekeeping mission that came in 2004 and the one that's proposed now. In 1995, the peacekeeping mission was there because it had been requested by an elected government, and its purpose was to protect the elected government from the return of dictatorships. Um, at the because the, the mission was not perfect it had its challenges and controversies but it was generally accepted and and appreciated by the Haitian people because they saw it as supporting their democracy 
At the time, there was also significant other international community support for democracy in Haiti. There were Canadian police who were training the Haitian police. There were uh, judges and prosecutors from Haiti were being sent to Canada, France, the U.S. to learn how to govern in a democratic system or how to judge in a democratic system. There was support for elections. Um, and across the board, there were efforts by the international community to really to support the institutions of governance in Haiti. Um, and of course, there was there was great support by the Haitian government and the people for this. And during that time, from 1995 to 2004, Haiti really demonstrated that democracy works. Uh, in my own work, so after after the UN, I was the, with the UN for about nine months, and then, as Bianca mentioned, I left to to join the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux or BAI, which was a group of lawyers that at the time had been set up by the Haitian government to help move prominent human rights cases through the justice system, and we were successful in our cases. I mean, we worked hard, but it was really. The, the result of improvements in the justice system, some helped by the international community, but also a lot of tireless work by Haitian um, legal officials, by top leaders, and by grassroots advocates, advocates activists to push the system along. Um, kind of a highlight for us was a case called the Roboto trial, which reached trial in, in the fall of 2000. And we were able to convict the top military and paramilitary leaders of Haiti's 1991 to 94 dictatorship of of murder and and other crimes in 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 connection with a uh, a civilian massacre um that is really the high point of Haiti's justice system as we all know the the types of massacres like the Rabato massacres those are happening all the time um with some combination the, the military is no longer there but it's gangs who have been dep in many cases deputized by the government to attack dissidents, the same type of people who were attacked in the Rabato massacre, um, poor neighborhoods likely to vote for the Lavalas movement are being attacked and the police are providing support. They're providing uh, protection from prosecution and government officials are, have been involved in the planning of, of these, uh, of these attacks. Um, but at the time, going back to, to 1994, at least to 2000, you, you had the international community was supporting this. Um, other great achievements of that democracy was in education. More, more secondary schools were built between 1994 and 2004 than had built in the previous history of Haiti at that time. Uh, adult literacy rates went, were, went down sharply. Healthcare increased. In fact, when the, um, the global fund for uh for uh aids tb and and um and um aids it was aids tb and malaria first went online hey it was a huge fund to to con combat infectious diseases haiti was one of the first countries to receive a grant the first three countries to receive a grant because it had established such a good public health system and collaboration uh with both private and public sector on health um haiti had the first ever transfer of power from an elected president to another elected president in 1996. Then it had the second transfer of power. And Haitians, most Haitians will argue that's the last time that has happened. Um, elections were off, parliamentary elections were often difficult, but they were the problems of democracies rather than the problems of dictatorships. Um, and 
you when you compare that to to as as Jeffrey Gaiti mentioned the fact that of the 7000 elected officials in Haiti all you have in place are nine senators that can't do anything because they can't get a quorum that is the measure of what we've lost by by Haiti's lost democracy and the reason why Haiti lost that democracy was in the late 1990s, after five or six years of, of, of success in democratic development, the international community lost patience with Haiti's democracy. The flashpoint, the, the point of contention was how much the government was going to be involved in providing basic government services. The government was not nationalizing anything, but the, the international community felt it was too slow about nationalizing some state enterprises. The government felt that you needed to increase spending on education in a country where over 50% of the people couldn't read. The government felt you needed to increase government uh, government health care support in a country where most people did not have access to basic health care. And thousands of children were dying from preventable, treatable diseases every year. The international community had a doctrine that the best government was the smallest government and did not like Haiti's insistence on increasing public services. As a response, the the, the international community started making it harder and harder for the government to operate. First, it just stopped cutting back um, support for the government's social programs. And after 2001, there was an actual development assistance embargo where countries like the United States and Canada stopped providing their own money to the government but they also kept other people from giving money to the government. Uh, one of the most notorious examples is the Inter-American Development Bank, which had a $400 million sanitation contract already signed, all ready to go. The U.S. and Canada got the Inter-American Development Bank to stop that project, meaning clean water was not put in place in two towns in Haiti, um, and people were not allowed access to clean water. That that was the gift that kept on giving because those water projects had never been built. And when cholera hit Haiti in 2010, those areas, they're in St. Mark and Port de Pay, which were among the hardest hit by cholera. The, the areas where the water projects were canceled were some of the worst hit today. Were the, were some of the worst hit in 2010. I expect we're going to see they're, they're going to be the worst hit among the worst hit from the resurgence of cholera that's been that's been created by by the government's uh by the support for the current dictatorship in Haiti when when the the development assistance embargo the, we we used to call the development assistance embargo back in in the early 2000 smart sanctions because they were very precisely targeted to hit the government's constituency, which was the majority of Haitians who are poor. So they hit healthcare, they hit education, they hit clean water projects without giving collateral damage to help to Haiti's elite who were, who were the, the main constituency of the international community in Haiti. And those sanctions worked. It, the, the police were, were hobbled from being able to provide uh, basic security services that allowed soldiers that were supported by the international community training semi-openly in the Dominican Republic to come over and start attacking um, police stations and towns in Haiti's Haiti's uh, east and north, uh, killing police officers, um, killing innocent civilians, and taking over uh, taking over the territory. That itself was not enough to 
overthrow Haiti's democracy. So the United States, uh, so actually Canada secured Haiti's airport. The United States sent a plane that filed a false flight plan, kidnapped Haiti's president and sent him to the, uh, to exile in Africa. Um, the UN, when Haiti's, actually let me step back a little bit. I'm going to give a little bit of a, uh, personal recollection of John mentioned the, the Haiti's bicentennial in 2004, where nobody, no country, uh, sent a head of state except for South Africa. The, the U.S., France, and Canada had managed to apply enough pressure, uh, to Caribbean countries, to African countries to prevent anybody from, from coming except for Tabo and Becky because South Africa had enough power to, to resist the, the imperialism. And I was there in Haiti and I, I've been living in Haiti for, for, um, for nine years at that time. And for nine years, I had heard Haitians tell me almost on a weekly basis, are you going to be here for the celebration of the bicentennial in 2004? I mean, it should have been one of the major commemorations of the last century anywhere in the world. The, the commemoration of the beginning of abolition of slavery, but they ruined that because the, the imperialists could not accept that Haiti's example of a country of freed slaves that were successful be allowed to be perceived of as, as successful. So President Aristide was, was, was kidnapped while his plane was in the air. The UN Security Council met to authorize a peacekeeping force. It was two steps. First, it was the multinational force, which is what, what they're now trying to do. Uh, it looks like they're trying to do. And then, then that was followed after three months by, by a, uh, an official UN peacekeeping force. And, you know, Jean mentioned the, the, um, the election in Brazil, what the U.S., what, what the Bush administration did then was very clever. We were able to, to make a lot of noise that, that this was an imperialist, white supremacist coup d'etat. So the, the Bush administration reached out to, to Brazil and got them to lead the mission as a way to defuse the criticism. And what they promised Brazil was the prospect of a security council seat, which of course, you know, the, Brazil did not get, but Haiti paid, paid the price. Um, and what they're now, what Canada, I'm sure, is now doing is going around to different countries and saying, you will get this, you know, the, the, the white supremacists will give you some prize if you, if you step up now and, and, um, and help us subjugate Haiti. Um, so far, we haven't heard of any countries that have officially said they're willing to come except for the Bahamas uh, last week the the prime minister of the Bahamas did say they would come if they were they were called um we expect that what's happening now is there people are trying to line up other countries to you know to to put a veneer of black over the white supremacist uh, continued white supremacist attack on Haiti and you know, one of the things that, that is most perplexing to Haitians is, is how anybody can possibly think that this could be a good thing. I mean, all you need to do is to look back at history, look back 18 years at history when Minusta, the last UN mission came in. Um, they said they were fighting gangs. The way they fought gangs was they went into, into poor neighborhoods, saw young men and boys who they suspected as gang members and they shot at them. 
and they they shot they killed gang members they killed women who happened to live in houses near gang members they killed little kids who happened to be playing out in the street near someone that the that the UN suspected was gang members and this was this was highly indiscriminate firing the worst example was on July 5th 2005 in one raid they shot 22,000 bullets into Cité Soleil plus 78 grenades this is Cité Soleil is a neighborhood of very closely packed mostly tin shacks so bullets a bullet fired from a high-powered rifle that the UN used that had the opportunity to go through dozens of houses before it stopped and killing anything anything that it hit that was the UN's idea of of gang intervention if anybody thinks that that idea has changed they've got they're 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 about to be uh to learn better because that is the plan that that the, that is going to be put in place and one of the things that 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 Haitians are are hoping that that CARICOM and Africa and other countries and and citizens of the US and Canada who care about racial justice we understand that if we're supporting intervention we are supporting foreign troops coming in and shooting at suspected at at poor young men and boys who are suspected gang members and hitting anybody who happens to be on uh in the path of of that bullet with no no accountability to the the United Nations let me bring back finish with one kind of quick um memory from from the from the the 2004 period that i think that 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 uh brings home some of the points that that um that Jeffrey Gaiti made about Canada. My colleague Mario and I were were uh, just after um, after the coup. We were invited up to to speak to Canadian audiences. There was several events in Montreal by the Haitian community. Um, Jeffrey Gaiti set up some some meetings with us with with political leaders and community leaders in in Ottawa. And one of the things that really sticks out from my mind is we were walking down a street in Montreal. And um, my colleague Mario picked up a flyer for a demonstration and he was he was really excited. It was for the next weekend and it was a huge demonstration against imperialism. And Mario's face lit up as he saw this. He said, oh, this is great. Uh, too bad we can't, you know, we can't stay for this. Um, and then he started reading it and the demonstration was against George Bush's war in Iraq. George Bush's war in Afghanistan, the destabilization of Nicaragua, the destabilization of Cuba, the destabilization of Venezuela, um, a few attempts at destabilization in Asia. And it was against a whole broad range of attacks by the, by George Bush against people in the Middle East, Latin American and Asia. Mario kept looking or mention of George Bush's kidnapping of a black elected president from Haiti, and he didn't see anything. His smile turned into to befuddlement and just deep disappointment. Um, and you know, we had that was after we had met with the Haitian community, who were totally um, engaged and informed on what had happened, and. Mario just couldn't believe it. He said, "People don't listen to Haitians. They don't listen to Haitian." Canadian Haitians, how can this possibly happen that anti-imperialists can organize a demonstration against all these attacks, but not against us? Um, you know, I think that we that that's a great 
reminder that white supremacist affects all of us. And I think that we need to keep that front and center as we move forward to figure out how we're going to combat this this latest attempt to subjugate Haiti. And step further, as BJ and as Jeffrey Gaiti said, it's not just stopping the intervention, it's stopping the US from and Canada from interfering in Haiti and allowing Haitians to determine their own future. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for that illuminating presentation and for all those details. Um, I think that, um, you know, many of them are so devastating, but they help us to very clearly understand Canada's role in Haiti and give us context for um, this country's attempts to lead yet another intervention, you know, and understanding what intervention really means. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for all of your work over the years. Very inspiring. And I also love how you said, you know, Haiti is a struggle that that can be won. So yes, let Haiti breathe. And a reminder to folks at home to take a minute to email Canada's foreign minister and opposition critics to say no um, to Canadian military intervention or further military intervention in Haiti. Um, and uh, thanks again to our speakers. Um, we are now at the end of our speakers. Um, Elle Jones may join us at some po point. She's kind of stuck in an airport. I have made contact with her. And if she's able to get out before the end of our, our, our conversation, then she will share with us uh, some of her poetry and thoughts. Um, thanks to those of you who have shared your questions in the Q&A. And we had a few um, that were sent in advance. Um, going to take the first question from uh, Pierre, um, who asks, if there's no Canadian military intervention, what's the plan to bring back security in Haiti this year? And, uh, you know, maybe I'll add to that just rhetorically, you know, what would you say to those who um, who would say it's cruel to just leave Haiti to the gangs? Uh, maybe I'll start with uh, with, with Jean. Yeah, um, well, I mean, the, the plan is that uh, the Haitian population is continuing to organize itself. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this is linked to some of the other questions that came in the chat. So, for instance, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Ronald Plasius who asked why USA doesn't stop these citizens sending arms and ammunitions to barbecue, uh, who is the, uh, the gang leader uh, and company. They don't do it because that's not what they want to do. They want to keep sending arms to uh, the oligarchs uh, for whom barbecue uh, is working. Uh, so, yeah, you know, the fact is we who are living in the belly of the beast, so to speak, have a role to play because really we need to make sure that, you know, Canadian weapons, U.S. weapons stop going to the gangs uh, that are working for those 15 mafia families. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it's not a coincidence that you never hear anybody talk about these guys in mainstream media. Uh, it, it's the same way that the colonial system operated. There are certain folks you never hear about them, but they're the ones running uh, the country. So the Haitian people are not in this since the past three weeks when Radio-Canada and CBC started reporting it. Okay? We've been living daily kidnappings for the past 11 years since they removed our 
duly elected government and replaced it by criminals uh, that they are protecting. I think it's important here uh, because I, 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 I see that again and again, you know, Canadians get dismayed, you know. I feel that I still don't understand. So that's another comment. Why Canada is so engaged in this ugly history when it doesn't appear to have significant social economic interest in Haiti? Well, our former foreign uh, uh, minister of foreign affairs answers that question, Laura. When uh, Bill Graham quoted in uh, Janice Gostein's book uh, says, um, there is a limit uh, to how much you can say no to our political masters uh, in Washington. On every file, we were offside. And then we came on side with Haiti and got another arrow in our quiver. That's our foreign minister admitting that his political masters are in Washington. So attacking Haiti is a cowardly act. But it's an easy thing. There's no army in Haiti that's going to shoot back at you. So, of course, the Canadian military wants to go in Haiti and get points from the political masters in Washington. Okay? And they're negotiating all kinds of stuff, trade deals, all kinds of stuff. And Haiti has no friend. The the few friends we had are like uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba. When after the earthquake, people were dying, Cuba sent doctors. You know what Canada sent? 2,000 soldiers alongside the 10,000 U.S. soldiers to block black Haitians so they don't get to the sea to land in Florida uh, uh, shores. So that's the reality. And yes, it's ugly. (laughs) It's ugly because we are asleep. We are not citizens of our own country. We allow our money to be used to conduct crimes. I'd like to add, though, uh, when uh, uh, Brian spoke and explained the IDB loans that were blocked in 2003 so that Haiti could not get, get access to really necessary infrastructure loans, water and everything, it's actually a case of extortion Because you know how they block those loans? Okay? Debts that were contracted by the Duvalier dictatorship. The Duvalier dictatorship that the United States imposed on Haiti for 30 years. So in reality, when you look at the books in 2003, instead of the IMF and the IDB sending money to Haiti, it was Haiti sending money to them. And I remember we had at least maybe something like $20 million in the Haitian reserves. And they forced President Ayussi to take all of that money to pay for those, for, for those uh, 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 arrears. You know, money that was spent by Duvalier into the French economy. Because you can see pictures of Jean-Claude Duvalier with Jacques Chirac, with the French elite, you know, whining and dining with the money stolen from the Haitian people. And that money has never returned to Haiti. Okay, so when we talk about corruption, I will remind people, corruption is not a genetic disease. Even though you never hear terms like white warlords, uh, you know, white dictators, that doesn't mean they don't exist, okay? It's just a word play 
that forces us to apply those terms easily to black head of states, okay? When in reality, we've always had the situations where the United Nations was mobilized to kidnap the prime minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, and assassinate him. And you never had any American president, any French president, any Belgian president facing uh, crimes in front of the International Crimes Tribunal. When Brian Concanon and, 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 um, Mario Joseph and other lawyers went to New York, okay, to tell the United Nations that you need to pay reparations to the Haitians because you contaminated a million of them and, and, and killed several thousand of them. Well, what happened? The United States government mobilized its own lawyers, its own money, and then they said to the Haitians, go home and die in silence. That's the world in which we live. We need to, you know, remove formal... minds, those fantasies that we send school, okay? This is ridiculous, are mobilized for economic interest. And yes, there are economic interests in Haiti. There has been prospections done in Haiti that proves that there is oil, there is gold, and these people are hungry for oil. They're going all over the planet and people who have oil like Nigeria are in trouble because they don't have weapons to protect their countries from the vultures. And Haiti is a country right now that needs to organize itself to fight the vultures. We need to get out of this angelic idea that we have a humanity of brotherhood. That's all bullshit. We never had that. We never had that. So perhaps, you know, we might one day have it, but we don't have that right now. So, you know, when people come and, 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 you know, I mean, we are suffering. So the, the idea of insulting Haitians and telling you going into the jungle to save the natives from themselves, Haitians as adults. So currently Haiti has a problem that gangs that are armed by U.S. made weapons are killing them. Okay. Out on the order of 15 white mafia families who are well-connected with corrupt elites in Canada and the United States. We've taken the responsibility of naming these criminals. One thing you can do to help us is do your research and stop this nonsense about talking about barbecue, some guy who just sits in one area of Port-au-Prince. He cannot even move out of that area. And they're telling you that for two years, they could not arrest him as if he is the big guy. They take a resolution at the United Nations. They name this one guy. Meanwhile, I have done the research from 2013 to last year. Okay. Regularly, you find illegal weapons caught at Port Lafito, which is owned and operated by Gilbert Bijo. Okay, the richest guy in Haiti who is a white guy. And I don't say that because he's white, but because he's a criminal and he happens to be white. And I don't think his whiteness should protect him when the name of barbecue is in the books, but they cannot put the name of Having a little bit of trouble with the internet. I'm not sure. 
if it's just on my end or if it's uh if it's uh, with uh, on your end at all uh, Jean you're freezing up for me a little bit but I'm not sure if it's my ah, internet okay maybe maybe it was my end but I, I should it should be okay now uh, okay all right I hear you well, well and, and I see Elle is around too yeah thank you so much um okay I, I see Elle is here I'm not sure if she's in a position to be able to speak yet but I do see that she's joined um El, can you hear us? I can hear you. I'm just actually like outside the airport, so I don't know if I can turn my camera on because I'd also have to hold it to my face when I read. Hang on, I'll turn it off for like two seconds. Hello. Hi, hi. It's so <laughs> great to see you. Thank you so much for making time for us within the context of, you know, all these changes to flights. We appreciate having you here. I'm just going to very quickly introduce you to our audience. Um, so Elle Jones has just joined us. It's great to have you. Elle, Elle is a poet, journalist, professor, and activist living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She was Halifax's Poet Laureate from 2013 to 2015. She's the author of Live from the African Resistance, a collection of poems about resisting white colonialism. And her new book, Abolitionist Intimacies, comes out this November. Welcome, Elle. Hi, thank you for having me. Sorry to join late, everybody. I just got off a plane. I'm starting my book tour. If you're in Montreal, you can come see me on the 5th at, I can't remember where, but check it on Twitter. Um, all right, I'm going to do a couple of poems to close you out. The first one isn't about Haiti, but it's about workers, so I figure it will help, and then we'll do the second one, and then I'll shut up. So, Can't do without us. We've been central. Yes, we know that we're essential. Work us to death and yet in general denied benefits, pensions, dental. Treat us like we're instrumental, like a pencil or utensil. You may not own us, but we're still rental. History changed the way you tell it. Write us off and say you founded black servants who never counted. Indigenous land is your surroundings. A Sherpa led you up that mountain. The high-rises glitter through our downtown. A janitor pushes a mop around. Without us, you can't get off the ground. Without us, you would not survive. The retail workers and delivery drivers skip the dishes, skip the lineup, call someone, I'll five for cleanup. Manager tells us to speed up. Just sit back and put your feet up. One of us will come to sweep up. We climb the ladder while you leap up. Inch by inch, we try to creep up. We're the storm inside the teacup. Mind the kids, assist the teachers, cashier, cabbie, nanny, cleaners. Don't acknowledge, but you need us. Don't acknowledge, but you need us. Can't do without us. Been the leaders, built this country before you freed us. Resist against the overseers, Chloe Cooley, Angelique, Richard Preston, Thomas Peters, railway porters on those sleepers, elders and the knowledge keepers, powwow dancers sent to heal us. Look through history how they treat us. Sick lumber workers cut the cedars. History books will never speak it. One Chinese railroad worker dead for every meter. Internment for the Japanese. Jewish workers in the factory. Sweatshop workers sew your sneakers. Slave catchers. Patrol police us, lock us up for misdemeanors. Simply for our skin and features, catch us up in your procedures. Still, we all remain the dreamers, immigrants and refugees. From the mailroom to the corner office, still they always profit off us. They hire us, they say they're cautious, giving us a lower offer. Wage gap resume is tossed, doesn't change when we're white collar. We work for pennies on the dollar, say his job just makes him bothered. The way they treat us, that's unlawful. That's why we join together in a caucus, like the ones who 
came before us. Carrie Best and those who taught us, don't give in, get a lawyer, black class action, fight the system, strike petition, lawsuit, sit in without demands, they'll never listen. Bromley Armstrong, where your children, Lynn Jones too, and Jan Simpson, unionize the whole damn building, one, then two, and then a million. No more temps and turns and fill-ins. Solidarity is a given. We're done code switching, trying to fit in. No more deals that try to cheat us. Pay us if you want to keep us. Work twice as hard, overachievers can't admit it, but you need us. Can't admit it, but you need us. Can't do without us on your committees. Civil service secretaries, administrators do the spreadsheets, only know our value once you leave us. Without us, who would plan for February? Emotional labor keeps us busy. EDIA to gild their lilies. This nonsense that could drive us silly, except we know our labor history, or should I take it back to treaties, gave their aid to Europeans, in return they got diseases, but you never can delete us. Domestic workers from West Indies, nannies from the Philippines, status for all is what we need, bring us from across the oceans, can't do without us, we're not tokens, rebellions in our hemoglobin, lift the signs, shout the slogans, no justice while the land is stolen. All this oppression, we're unbroken, tired of how it goes unspoken, foreign qualifications, no promotions, natural hair cause a commotion, somehow we're just never chosen, say we're angry when we show emotion, say you don't accept our diplomas, when it comes to us, the doors aren't open, when it comes to us, the money's frozen, when it comes to us, a secret quota, we rose up in Minnesota, standing rock in South Dakota, now here comes another quota, pay us what you know you owe us, reparations settlement, grievance, divide and rule won't come between us. Mi'kmaq fisheries will feed us with this sovereign land beneath us. Fight before they leave us, treeless. Fight before the pipelines reach us. Fight on land that's still unseated. Stand together. You can't beat us. You might pretend that you can't see us, but don't forget it. That you need us can't do without us because you need us built this whole damn thing. You best believe it. Sorry, someone walked by on their phone right at the end. Oh, no, that's great. Right. Beautiful, powerful, to the point. Thank you, Elle. All right. I'll do one more very quickly, and then I will let you be. This is from Emancipation Day. Um, hang on. I have to find these things on my phone. I'm sorry. I just got off the plane. All right. Some may have heard this, but here we go. This ocean is spread with our bones, fed by our flesh ripped off our thrones to be thrown to its depth stripped with whips and our tongues taken out of our chest slavery broke our families from our lungs stole our breath from the hold on the ships to the chains on our necks and they deemed us as property only a check and these docks and this city it profited yes no not just the south not just in the u.s so these warehouses filled with the fruits of our death as the goods came and went and our bodies were spent and the merchants saw profits go up by percents and the sugar came in and the salt cod was sent and when they could no longer own us they shifted to rent but though we were indentured, they could not prevent. I don't think they imagined the way we'd ascend. And that's why our culture's all over the net. We've created from nothing again and again. But a stroke of a pen or a cent to a bill, it can't erase centuries of them taking their fill. Look at Haiti, whose freedom they punished until for centuries that blood has continued to spill. For the slave revolution, they'll never forgive. We've been held to the ground from here to Brazil. And oh God, did we build, 
We built Citadel Hill, left on the rockiest lands that we tended with skill. We weren't meant to survive, they intended to kill. And we're only still here by our faith and our will. And still we can't rest. We're still treated as guests. And still we are tested, street checked and arrested. Still slave on the farms, picking fruit unprotected. And the streets named for slave owners still uncorrected. You can't look in our face and say we're truly accepted and our ancestors' dreams unfulfilled and deferred, but we still believe freedom is more than a word and we won't end our struggle on August the 1st and we will not dry up in the sun. We won't burn and there's power in our steps. We're done waiting our turn. But this still isn't freedom, not yet. We have made it so far, but there's further to get while you still cross the street because you think we're a threat and you still send police to kick us out of our tents. And we still live in a world where black life is condemned while our modern oppressors come round like their friends and they offer us grants for our pressure to end, but we will not be bought and our struggle won't sell because we know we inherit generations of strength. Our great-great-grandmothers cradled their babies and wept while the milk dried up in their breasts and their shoulders were bent, yet they still gave us life. We are here in their debt. And what we owe each other can only be felt. And that's why when we pass on the streets, we still nod with our heads. And that's why when we're pressed, we will always protest, just like the moon and the waves are a timeless duet. We are pulled by our history to never relent. And what you don't see is the love we still lend. We can't even say our lives matter without causing offense. And yet we're not broken and we will not bend. And every concession they try to reject. Freedom never was given. We crawled and we crept. For every inch we progressed, there is so much still left. But emancipation still comes through the pain and the theft. And this still isn't freedom. Not yet. The destruction of Africville we can't forget, nor the graves where our bodies are buried unmarked, nor our elders' land titles exploited by sharks, not while children still hate that their skin tone is dark, not while children still doubt they could ever be smart, that the hope and dream of the slave still burns in our hearts. Our elders have carried us over this far until everyone's free. We still follow that star. Just like all of our people who died unremarked because we are called, as the spiritual said. We're not meant to be here. We are meant to be dead. And so every day of our presence is blessed. And one day we'll be living our life at its best. But there's not one black life that will ever be left. Till we all stand together, we will not accept because this still isn't freedom. Not yet. We have made it this far. There is further to get. Thank you, everybody. Yes, yes, Al, yes. <laughs> we feel this way. Thank everybody, you, thank you, thank you. Freak screaming at the airport. <laughs> thank you. I'm going to let you guys go. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank you. Derek. All thanks. Thank and you. We can never forget the debt we owe Haiti and Canada's continued hatred and racism and deprivation to Haiti solely for the freedom they gave all of us. So thank you, everybody. Take care. Have a good night. Bye. Good night. Good night, Elle. Thank you so much. Thank you to Elle for making time for us and, uh, yeah, for sharing those dreams of 
emancipation and for putting words to to this struggle. I think that I think we all felt that very deeply. Um, so I'm going to try and transition us back into some questions because there's still quite a few and we have um, we have more than 15 minutes left here. So I'm just going to try and get to a couple more of these. We have a lot of people who are asking questions about um, about the Montana Accords. Uh, we have one person who says, how credible are the signees of the Montana Accords? Do they represent Haitian people? Amrit wants to know, you know, I've been seeing talk about these. Is this a possible solution? Is it Haitian-led? Um, should we all be ignoring this accord? So, Jean uh, and Brian, what are the Montana Accords and what's your opinion of them? I'd like to hear what Jean thinks about that. All right. So, actually, I had um, uh, taken notes on that uh, to say that uh, there's been major destabilization of Haitian society as part of the preparation for the 2004 coup. So the Montana Accord, when it was um, in the works, uh, was actually something that took me by surprise because some of the lead players in there uh, were our opponents in 2004. Magali Denis not only was part of preparation for the coup, but after the coup, uh, she was in the Conseil des Sages, along with Ariel Henry, etc. So these are not people for whom I had much love. Yet, when I observed their process, I was one of the first people on the Lavalas camp, basically, who actually did a Facebook Live and encouraged people to join the Montana Accord, because they really went out of their way uh, to try to uh, uh, meet people inside of the country, in the diaspora, to have a dialogue. Some of them admitted that their participation in the 2004 coup was naive and they got taken for a ride. And, you know, at the table, when the Montana Accord was being signed, you had these people have just described who were part of the 2004 coup all the way to Lavalas. For me, Lavalas signed the accord. You had grassroots organization like Mole Gaff who signed it. A whole bunch of progressive people. Now, unfortunately, uh, I did send them some notes to warn them that this is not going to happen and the United States and the CIA are just going to sit and watch you do this, okay? They're going to infiltrate this movement sooner or later. Therefore, you guys need to put on your side the popular sector, the population of Haiti, okay? Because it doesn't matter how you try to put it nice. The Montana Accord are the equivalent of Haiti's affranchi during the time of, of, of revolution. Okay. They're the privileged folks who meet in hotels. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that, you know, some of us are privileged, like, like us right now who are using the internet. Uh, that's not the majority of the Haitian population. So we told them that otherwise they'll be weak. And unfortunately, over the, uh, the, the years, what we saw happen is that the United States basically got convinced the Montana Accord folks to remove all of their teeth. What I call their teeth is their articulation of something called coupe fâché, that is a, a rupture with the current order. And to me, that was their only strength. 
because you have a population that has been suffering from a group of criminals for 11 years, and you say that you're proposing to bring the country back on the rails of legality and to rupture, to have a rupture with that uh, system, which is what the, the streets have been advocating for for years. Okay, now, unfortunately, uh, they convinced them that the threat is actually the population, and to go and negotiate with the PHTK regime that is in power, uh, represented by something called, uh, uh, because as soon as they had their accord, the, the United States got another group of criminals from PHTK to sign their own accord, uh, a September something accord, whatever, okay? There, there was, there's no, it's all the, the government, you know, basically that got their own uh, folks in there. And, and that causes them to lose credibility, Eventually, Fami Lavalas shut the door and said, listen, you guys are not serious because you're not talking about coupé fâché or rupture anymore because you are basically saying that the guys, the same people who destroyed the country, stole all of those resources that the government, that, that the people want to judge, you want to have them in the transition. And one of the specific recommendations I made to the Montana Accord, as I signed it, I was a signatory as an individual, and our group, Solidarité Québec IT, also signed it. We said that uh, one of the uh, uh, principles they should, they must abide by and put on the table is that the transition shall have no one on whom there are serious accusations of participation in massacres. Uh, in the assassination of Jovenel Moise as one uh, example. Uh, and those people should be excluded uh, from the transition. And if through uh, a, a trial they are found guilty, of course, they must be excluded from, from the next election. Of course, I mean, this sounds so reasonable. You know, I never thought that this is something that they would, they would cower from, but they, they never uh, wanted to do that. And, and you know, what we're seeing is a commitment from the United States to maintain PHTK, which is the party of Michel Martelly, part of every conversation. And the Haitian people are saying, no, you cannot have these criminals uh, part of anything in the transition. Because first of all, they, they came to power illegally. The only support they have is through Washington. They destroyed our country. All of our institutions are in shambles. And you cannot impose them. You know, it's the equivalent, as I've often said, of some power outside of Canada, you know, saying to the Canadian society that whatever you're going to do in your next governance, you must include Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo, you know, mass murderers <laughs> as part of it. That's, that's essentially what uh, the, the core group is imposing on Haitians. Okay. Uh, and yeah, Haitian society has criminals. And Haitian criminals belong in jail, just like criminals in Canada belong in jail. So, unfortunately, the Montana group lost steam. Uh, but it's also not true when they give us the impression that Montana and PHTK are the only thing on the ground. In fact, that's not at all the genesis of the whole thing. The only reason why, for instance... You heard about the Petro Challengers in 2018, and then you hear of Montana, but you never heard of over 50 demonstrations that took place after the fake elections of 2015. It's because those elections were organized by 
the poor communities of Bel Air, Cité Soleil, exactly the areas that are attacked now, the bastions of Lavalas. And those demonstrations never make it to CNN. But when the middle class people who came from the same neighborhoods as I, light-skinned Haitians, you know, do uh, petrol challenges, of course, they give us the microphone because we're cute. We speak English. We speak French. (laughs) That's the problem. You know, it would be preposterous to suggest that those of us who are participating in this program tonight are the representatives of the Haitian grassroots. We are part of Haitian society, but we cannot substitute ourselves to the real heroes. And those people, unfortunately, when they demonstrate, okay, they shoot at them with real bullets. I mean, you know, it's... and, and of course, and, and I don't say that to uh, diminish, and I've said it many times to uh, our brothers and sisters from the Petro Challenger group, because some of them have been killed also in the last few years. Okay, so the fact that they do have some privilege, some class privilege, doesn't mean that they are not exposed, especially now when they are killing people from all kinds of, 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 of neighborhoods. But what I mean is that there's a class struggle in Haiti that needs to be overcome as well. There's never a successful movement in Haiti that has come from a little segment of the society. The revolution in 1791 would not have succeeded if it remained within the affranchi of Auger and Chavannes. These fools were only you know, demonstrating so they can wear the same clothes as the whites. They weren't fighting for anything substantial. The African population, the large masses, were fighting to overthrow the system. And it's when some of the privileged few joined the majority that we finally were successful. The same thing with Lavalas in 1990, okay? When people talk about Lavalas as if it's only impoverished Haitians who supported President Aristide, they're lying, okay? Antoine Ismail wasn't a poor Haitian. He was a millionaire of Palestinian origin. He was part of that class of predators in Haiti. But he committed class suicide and he joined the masses and he was assassinated for, uh, for this affront. So, so was his brother, uh, Georges Ismeri. So throughout Haitian history, we have found people who understood the necessity to join the masses. And whenever they do that, we have a beautiful thing in Haiti because then the power, uh, becomes tremendous. And even the United States that has chosen its own candidate in 1990 had to accept, listen, okay, these people, they want this guy president. So they backtrack. The error we always make is that we cry victory too early. Okay. You know, we celebrated the fact that Aristide became president. He only lasted seven months. Okay. Yeah, they didn't kill him, but they stole our five-year mandate. And when he came back again, they stole it again. Because the whole three years that President Aristide spent as, as president, you know, we saw what was happening. They boycotted everything that this man did. You know, and that's why I always remind people when we make these presentations, you know, we talk about Montana Accord. And like I said, you know, I, I was proud of the fact that Haitians who did not agree on many things came and they had a vision of what we want our society uh, to look like. We want to try the criminals who stole the Petro-Caribe funds, et cetera. But, you know, I always remind people, it's not just that they overthrow 
our governments that we put in place. But we had good government. The government of Lavalas invested 16% of the national budget in healthcare. Okay, I work in a medical school in Canada. I know what it takes to run a university. This couple of Haitian professionals left exile in South Africa, went back to Haiti in 2011. And from 2011 and today, I see those images. I've been to the campus of uh, Dr. Aristide's university. 1,000 professionals, doctors, lawyers, you know, in a country like Haiti, you have to understand what that means. And this is the guy they're saying to us is not good for Haiti. And who is saying that? A handful of white men and women who sit down in Gatineau who are not going to pay the consequences when after 18 years, the country has not produced enough professionals. We don't have health care. And then you're going to show up and say that, well, you have cholera. Well, we have cholera because you brought cholera to us and you stopped us from having the medical teams to deal with cholera. And that's why what we're saying here is that it's not a question of how can Canada help Haiti. Canada cannot help Haiti. We want Canada to stop harming Haiti. So get out, go away. And, you know, we've said it in English, in French, in Creole. And I guess, you know, we need to find help. Some people to translate it in Inuktitut, in, in, in Algonquin, all the languages that these people uh, uh, you know, so that there's no ambiguity, you know, and that I'm joking about this, but it's, it's serious. You know, we had a demonstration in Montreal and Brian, you, you, you'd smile at that, right? Um, Solidarité Quebec Haiti. We have a sign behind us that says Canada Sorte d'Haïti, which translates literally in English, Canada out of Haiti. And then there is a mainstream media that publishes, uh, uh something to talk about the demonstration. And you know what they put as their their headline? Haitians asking Canada for help. <laughs> so and and with the picture in the background, in French, of course. So that's why the other day when uh the Canadian government, the Canadian ambassador Sebastien Carrier was having a meeting with um, some of the petrol challenger activists, etc. We wrote to them. We said, brothers, be careful. These people invite you to those meetings telling you that it's in good faith. We're looking for solutions for Haiti, but it's a trap. Okay. No matter what you say at this meeting, they're going to take the screenshots and say that, you see, we consulted the Haitian community. They all asked us for help. No, that's why we have to keep on repeating. No, we don't want Canadian troops in Haiti. We don't want American troops. We don't want them with blackface, you know, from Rwanda, like we saw uh, it was published in the Globe and Mail. This guy, Robert Rodberg, said that we need to go get uh, the soldiers uh, from uh, from Paul Kagame to go and, you know, murder the Haitians for us uh, so that Bijo, Aped, Madsen can feel comfortable again on the colony. It's not going to happen, okay? Uh, we will not assist black fratricide uh, for a handful of white criminals. Criminals belong in jail, whether they are millionaires or billionaires. They belong in jail and people who are decent citizens need to run their countries. You know, I would be against you know, the ambassador of Zimbabwe, uh, of Ivory Coast, 
having a little meeting to change the prime minister of Canada. I, I would be absolutely against that. And so it's for the same reason that I'm against uh, the core group, uh, uh, you know, switching uh, blackface puppets in Haiti every, every, na- every time they please. Thank you, Jean. That was so comprehensive. I'm wondering, uh, Brian, if you have anything to add to the class elements of the struggle that Jean was speaking about or the Montana Accords. If, uh, if, if not, I can move on to a couple more questions. Um, yeah, just this- very, very quickly, one, one quick observation. Often, especially in the media, they refer to policy by North America and Europe as neglect of Haiti. We're neglecting Haiti. Or it's referred to as a mistake. We made a mistake by supporting this government that's dismantled Haiti's democracy. We made a mistake in how the troops, uh, you know, hunted down poor black men in, in poor neighborhoods or, or left a, spent 13 years and $9 billion to leave Haiti less democratic than it was when they got there. <clears throat> None of that is a mistake. That is the policy working how it's supposed to work. The policy of the international community is to prevent poor people from having a, a government that represents them in Haiti. And that was why they pried the base away from the Montana Accords, leaving them vulnerable to the you know, to, 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 to the, the quote negotiations. Um, and we just can't forget that as we go. And every time we are opposing policies, that needs to be front and center that these policies are not failures, that they're succeeding at exactly what they're designed to do, which is to keep Haiti poor and dependent. Brian, on the topic of sanctions, um, I'm, we have got, uh, we have a couple questions about the gangs. I'm wondering if we had one in advance, um, where someone wanted to know, can you explain? the sanctions that are being placed on the gangs. Are these serious? What are the impacts of the sanctions? Well, one one measure of how serious they are is that, you know, as Jeffrey Gaiti mentioned, the kind of the poster boy for this is Jimmy Cherizier. Jimmy Cherizier has had sanctions on him for almost for two years. Uh, in December 2020, the U.S. actually imposed sanctions. They never did anything with it. They also imposed sanctions on two other PHTK officials. They never did anything. So, you can put to all the sanctions you want, and if you don't enforce them, they're not going to make a difference. Second, you know, it's just like hunting down poor black men that, that look to you like gang members and shoot them. Yes, you're going to kill some people who are involved in crime if you do that, but you're not going to address the underlying drivers of crime, which is failure to provide government services, which this government is intentionally failing to do. And you're not going to address the the dominance of the economy by a few wealthy families and the dominance of gang violence by a few wealthy families that are they're using the gangs as a way to protect their power structures. As long as no one is going after those power structures, the gang violence is going to continue to rebound worse than it was before. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I don't know if there's anything more to add to that, but, uh, Darren wanted to know, um, yeah, just kind of the scale of the gang issue. Although I, I feel like you've speaking to, spoken to that and, uh, what is known about barbecue. Is there any other insight that you can give us into this, um, into barbecue? Well, I answered, uh, uh one of, uh, the gentlemen who asked the question on, on the, Q and A. Oh, right point, in there. Okay. Yeah, that you know they're saying that there are some uh, left-leaning groups 
he's really actually referring to Dan Cohen and uh, Kim Ives of Haiti Liberté, who are presenting barbecue as a revolutionary. And, and these guys are in conflict of interest because they're making a film uh, and their film is about to be released. So, of course, and this is not new either. Uh, during the first coup in 2004, we saw, uh, you know, a lot of wirism uh, in the crimes that were happening in Haiti. There was a film called The Ghost of Cité Soleil, which involved Wyclef Jean. Uh, you know, these Hollywood folks are really ugly. You know, like people, young people were being killed in Cité Soleil and they went in with their cameras and they're inventing heroes and bad guys. And at the end of the film, you know, the white journalists who enter Cité Soleil, you know, make these guys talk, they're all alive. But all the gang leaders are dead, okay, including with their families. And 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 so now they're trying to prop up uh, uh, barbecue as some kind of uh, revolutionary. And Kim Ives went to Cuba and, and brought him a beret, as if if you put a beret on his head, all of a sudden he's Che Guevara. You know, the reality is you cannot identify any victim of barbecue who comes from the uh, the rich or the so-called oligarchs that he claims to be fighting. All of his victims are uh, from the poor neighborhoods were exactly the bastion of support for the popular movement and Lavalas are. And of course, the reason why it's easy to say that, well, all of these guys are gangs is because they are poor people walking in sandals. And there's this perception that everybody poor in Haiti is a gang. Uh, and unfortunately, that, that, that prejudice exists in the Haitian society as well. And so there's some kind of, and, you know, when Minusta was killing, you know, uh, Brian mentioned this massive uh, uh, killing spree that happened July 6, 2005, when, you know, at dawn of day, you know, Minusta or the UN troops were uh, uh, shooting people. You had, you know, the, the family of uh, uh, Stanley Womelus, uh, and, and his little brother, like four and two year old, and their mother, Sonia, they got killed. Were they gang members at two years old, at four years old? No, they lived in Cité Soleil. It's not a crime. But, you know, that's why they went to Brazil. Because the Brazilian police is notorious for conducting such massacres in Black neighborhoods in Sao Paulo, in Rio de Janeiro. You also had Jordan (laughs) had a presence in Minusta. I mean, how can you put Jordan and democracy together? And these were the guys who were part of the mission for democracy in Haiti. The, the real goal of the mission was to subdue uh, the pockets of resistance in the impoverished neighborhoods. Now, that doesn't mean there are no gangs in Haiti, uh, because the situation of 2004 is completely different than what we have now, except that in the last 10 years, they were systematically creating those gangs and positioning them in areas where they can control the electorate so that you can have low turnout elections, okay? And where it will be, uh, you know, the, the, the core group that claim that, okay, here are the results of the election. Oh, there's low turnout, but that's good enough for Haiti. Here's your new president. Uh, that's, the Haitian people are not going to accept that. And that's the resistance you're seeing. The final point I'll make is with regards to this uh, uh, terminology, Global Fragility Act, that, that they've introduced. 
it's a new name for an old dog. Okay. <laughs> you know, the responsibility to protect doctrine has been completely discredited, uh, through the 2004 coup in Haiti and, and, and foreign intervention, because now people are discovering that, you know, when they say responsibility to protect, you need to ask the question, protect who from what? And the answer to that is to protect the corrupt elites from the masses. That's what the responsibility to protect has been in Haiti. Now, uh, pre- uh, President Biden has said that Haiti is going to be the first partner <laughs> in implementing the Global Fragility Act. They call it a partner, right? So, and, and, and the partner, of course, is Ariel Henry, the, the, the non-entity uh, who claims to be prime minister and president at the same time, asking uh, the United States uh, and Canada for an invasion, and then they're going to uh, uh, say this is part of the Global Fragility Act, uh, so that you know these adult uh, countries have uh, a responsibility to intervene. It's the same thing they used to call the responsibility to protect, and is it is as illegal, as racist, and frankly as stupid as uh, its uh, previous uh, uh, thing that, uh, you know, those of us who live in Canada know that our prime ministers or ministers have traveled around the world saying how proud they are of Canada's history of introducing this concept. Uh, yeah, because, you know, the history uh, professors are not doing their work to really tell us what has been the track record of that thing. Thank you, Jean. So, I mean, I think the core message uh, for us is pretty loud and clear for Canada, for the U.S., you know, stop harming Haiti. Um, but, you know, I think I might end on the uh, the topic of solidarity for whatever it's worth. I noted that um, that Brian put an article in the chat about um, uh, six ways the U.S. and the international community can help Haiti without armed intervention. So I look forward to reading that. And then just to both of you as a last question, like what would meaningful solidarity with Haiti, what does that actually look like? I tell people to stay informed and stay engaged. You know, we're not going to control the the, the newspapers of record, but we all have plenty of outlets where good information can come out. Um, I, you know, for Canadians, I will direct everybody to Jeffrey Gaiti's websites, uh, Canada Haiti Action Network. There's lots of great information about that. There's great books been written, articles, and obviously really appreciate the uh, Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, which was not around in 2004 and really excited that it's still there um, or that it is now here. Um, I'd like to, you know, we started IJDH in response to the coup d'etat as a way of, of putting information. So I will recommend us as a place to find out about what's going on in Haiti. And our website is www.ijdh.org. And stay engaged. Find people who are also organizing on on an anti-racist, anti-imperialist basis and do what, you know, and work with them. There's no one button we can all press right now that's going to stop imperialism but persistent engaging can i will say i'll i'll, I'll uh, 
reiterate the call that was made at the top of the issue to start today by by reaching out to the Canadian government to tell them not to not to send send troops to Haiti. But this is not something you can start today. You can't finish today. It's something that we're all going to need to stay engaged and informed on to to keep fighting back. Thank you, Brian. Jeffrey Kaiti. Yes, um, I would say definitely uh, uh, visit the Canada uh, Canadian Fund, um, Foreign Policy Institute uh, website, uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook regularly. Um, if you are organizing an event, make sure you invite Haitians to speak for themselves, uh, not some kind of NGO of Oxfam <laughs> to speak on our behalf. Please do not do this anymore. Haitians speak many languages. Uh, I can invite you to consult uh, some of the publications of uh, Edwidge Dantica in the New Yorker, uh, who regularly speaks about it. Edwidge grew up in Bel Air. So, you know, she's never abandoned her roots. She writes authoritatively about what's happening there and she maintains contacts. Uh, uh, Professor Jemima Pierre, uh, uh, who is also involved with the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, Daoud Andre, uh, with Komokoda in New York. Uh, all of these, uh, are speakers who can address in English and French and Creole. And, um, and inside of Haiti, uh, you will also find men and women who are underground and who are part of the struggle who can address, uh, uh, you know, where the struggle is and, and what is needed and, and, and what is being done. So, um, you know, when we, we read it the other day in, uh, in a Brazilian publication that the former, um, lead, uh, of uh, the Minusta or the UN troops there had exclaimed that if he follows through with the pressures that he's receiving from the United States and, 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 and others, he might end up in front of the International Crimes Tribunal. He said that, okay? Uh, that's because he knew they were involved in crimes against humanity. And the night before he was found suicided uh, at the Hotel Montana, he was in heated arguments, uh, as it was reported, with Reginald Boulos, Andre Aped. These are two of the white oligarchs in Haiti. Okay, because these guys were criticizing uh, the Brazilian troops, saying that they're too soft on gangs. And gangs is a code word for the impoverished men and women of uh, the poor neighborhoods. And now they have co-opted those gangs. Um, you, we have uh, uh, Professor Justin Perdue. We have, uh, um, oh, I'm I'm forgetting our brother's name who wrote about the paramilitarism in Haiti. Please Jeb help Sprague. Me. Jeb Sprague, who wrote those books that were actually Andre Aped, one of the white oligarchs in Haiti, admitted that Thomas Labanier Robinson was working for him, one of the gang leaders at the time, who did whatever he wanted, just like barbecue today. And Aped was bragging Okay, about the fact that he ordered the police not to arrest this gang leader and in fact facilitated for Labanier's wife to get a U.S. visa. Okay, so 
you know, you have to put all of these things together when you see these strong men that are being created every four or five years. Uh, and and they're presenting them as if they are powerful, like Ben Laden, and they're looking for them for two years. They cannot find them. This is all makeshift uh, 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 stuff because all of the weapons these guys are using are coming from Florida. All they need to do is apply uh, uh, the policy so that the weapons do not go. Like two weeks, these guys are without weapons. The population will do the rest of the job, but they don't want that. Because if that happens, the oligarchs no longer have the upper hand on the population. That's a constant in Haitian history. Okay, Whether you look at colonial times or today, the whole conflict is about a handful of criminals who are facing a large population. The population have the numbers with them, and the handful of criminals have money, power, and foreign allies. That's the conflict in Haiti. Okay, I think that's a good note uh, on which to end today's event. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much, Jeffrey Kaiti, for such a lively, detailed discussion. Thank you for your tremendous analysis. Thanks to Elle, who's no longer here, for her poetry. Thanks to Vijay Prashad for his solidarity and activism. Um, I think we've all learned a great deal. And as Brian said, stay informed, stay engaged. Um, as Jean said, let Haitians speak for themselves. Take our action. We posted it in the chat. Call on the Canadian government to refrain from further military intervention. Read works of Edwidge Dantica, Jemima, Jemima Pierre's work. Find out about the work of IJDH. Um, so it's been a great event. I want to thank again our panelists, Brian. Jean, Vijay, L. Thanks to our co-sponsors, Common Frontiers. Uh, please do find out more about their work um, and also the writing of our panelists. And a reminder to our audience that our organization is uh, completely reliant on contributions from our community to keep doing this work. So please do consider donating at foreignpolicy.ca slash donation. Um, share the action alert. Thanks again um, to our brilliant panelists and to you our audience uh, for joining us and for your excellent questions. Uh, and so I'll say it again, uh, let Haiti breathe. Um, and that's it for our event tonight. Good night uh, and peace.